Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma and this week we're going to be talking about new entrant farmers and the need for succession planning. First we're joined by Lynn from Lynnbreck Croft, which is located in the Cairngorms National Park. Lynn and her partner Sandra are relatively new to farming, but have managed to inspire and enthuse many across the country with their passion for nature. Then to discuss the wider context of opportunities and challenges for new entrants, we will be joined by Rose, who is Scotland Policy Coordinator for the Landworkers Alliance and Chair of the Scottish Farmland Trust. So first, let's meet Lynn. I'm really super excited to speak with her and find out more about their journey so far. Welcome, Lynn. It would be really grand if you could just start off by telling us how you and Sandra ended up at Lynnbrook, what your backgrounds are and why you decided to start farming in the Highlands. Well, I guess I'll start with our backgrounds in that neither of us come from any kind of farming background at all. So I, I trained as an archaeologist and Sandra trained as a librarian. So two completely different vocations, I guess. We both found ourselves on the same path whenever we met working for the National Trust, when we both made sort of career changes into becoming apprentice rangers. And the reason we did that was independently, we felt kind of drawn much more to working within the natural world. So it was whenever we met then that we kind of shared this dream that we had of, I guess, really living closer to nature, living off the land. Um, And that's when we sort of made that decision quite early on that, you know, our plan in the future would be to do that. But, you know, like everybody, it's one thing to have the dream. It's very hard to realise it. And so we decided that Scotland was going to be the place where we wanted to move to because of Sandra. She's half Scottish, so it seemed kind of like a natural place to move to. And we both left our jobs, moved to Scotland and really started our quest to kind of look for land. And it took us uh, about two and a half years between when we moved to Scotland to actually moving to Limbrek. And and, uh, we found it on the open market and it was the kind of cliche of we chose the land as much as the land chose us. And also we just knew it was the right place for us, even though it was way beyond our budget and it was about 15 times bigger than what it was that we'd always intended to buy. So there were lots of opportunities there, but also lots of curveballs. That's quite an exciting story, isn't it? And I think the whole concept that when you set out to what you're looking for, and then that's not actually what you end up with, but what you end up with is right. So it's that kind of... Exactly. I think that's what I kind of love is that open-mindedness. Is there anything that you wish that you knew before you started? So it's a really, really good question. I mean, I could say that there's loads that we wish that we'd known there's lots of skills we wish we'd had and developed but actually if I'm honest I think one of our strengths has been the fact that we didn't know any of that so you know at the start we always thought oh I wish I knew about farming I wish I knew about you know running a business I wish I knew about accounting I wish I knew about all these different things that funnel into a farm business but actually not knowing about any of those and in particular farming and agriculture It meant that we had to really look at what we had and work with what we had, which meant that we had to be inventive. It meant that we had to find ways to work with nature so that we wouldn't have to spend money. So actually reflecting how we kind of came into this was probably the right way. Well, that's probably really encouraging for a lot of folk that are listening to this, I can imagine. So what would you say have been your biggest challenges and how have you overcome them? I think even to this day, so we've been at Limbrek for four and a half years, even to this day, pretty much not a day goes by when we don't have another challenge to face. And I think that's probably 
actually leads me into nicely what is one of the biggest challenges of living this way of life is that it's relentless. It is every day, it is 24 seven, it is morning, noon and night. And it very rarely goes the way that you plan or want it to go. So there'll be days when you are literally tearing your hair out going, stop, you know, because it's just one thing after the next, after the next. And you just have to keep powering on because at the end of the day, the animals need fed, the place needs to run. You need to chop wood to heat your house. It is very, very real. So I think a challenge has been kind of, I guess, getting used to that. But right back at the very start, we were like any other new entrant and that the problem was finding land. So one aspect of that is actually the search itself. So we did it all just by looking on the open market. So we just spent evening after evening after evening trawling through estate agents, websites, uh, you know, sending out emails, just the same thing repetitively, repetitively, repetitively. And then at weekends, because we're obviously working full time at this point, you're kind of driving up and down the country, you know, constantly disappointing yourself because you're thinking this is going to be it. And then it isn't. So there's the looking for the land and then there's the affording the land. You know, we were in our late 30s when we bought Limbrex. So we'd had quite a few years beforehand to really save and, you know, to work really hard and try and get as much money as we could together to realise our dream. But it's really, really difficult to find affordable land. And we ended up having to take a loan out to buy Limbrek, which meant that we were put into a, I guess, a little bit more of a, a worrying financial situation. And it's not something that you ever want to encourage somebody to do or, or push in that direction. But equally, if we hadn't have taken that risk, we never would have been here today. And it's all about kind of managing those risks. So that was another kind of really, really big challenge. And then it's just the learning, you know, Running a farm business is running a farm business. And there's two key elements in that. So one is farming, so everything to do with animal agriculture in our situation, you know, working the land, living on the land, all that kind of thing. And then there's the business side of things. So how do you make money? What's marketing all about? What's sales all about? You know, what's promotion all about? Which is as much as, if not bigger, than the farm side of it. So that was another huge learning curve that, again, we're, we're kind of still learning today. So I guess, yeah, those are some of the top challenges. I could go on, but, you know, <laughs> we'll leave it at that for now. No, I think that's a really good flavour. And probably most people listening to this would be able to identify with them. And I think that it's the idea of working the land every single day and the romanticness and the idealism that attached to all of that is wonderful. But then mm-hmm. where do you have a day off? Where do you go on holiday? You have to give up a certain part of your life for it don't you so I understand that that yeah. as well as it's exceptionally rewarding that obviously is a fundamental challenge and then also the fact that if you've got to then get external finance to support the purchase of your farm you've then got that pressure mm-hmm. almost immediately that you have to start bringing in an income you have to start making money so do you have any sort of tips or ideas of if someone's in that situation whereby they've got that pressure of having to make an income straight away, what sort of enterprise is a good one to get going with so that you can get that money coming in, some cash flow? Yeah. So again, that's an excellent question because from our experience, the easiest, quickest way to just get money coming in from the start is to work off farm. And that's what we did. I was working off farm for the first four years that we were at Limbrick uh, and Sandra for about the first three years. The difficulty is that the working off farm is not part of your dream, right? You know, working off farm is what you're trying to get away from, but it fills a purpose. And that's what you have to 
I guess, get comfortable with in your mind. The challenge is that you're not here, okay? And what you want to be is here because you've made this massive life shift, turned your back on everything, including friends and family, which is what we did, you know, to move to somewhere where you didn't know anybody. And the last thing you wanted to do was to leave and go and work some nine to five job. But what it does do is it takes that stress out of the situation. It means that you value every single penny that you have because you know that that is what will go towards paying the bills to make this happen. So you really have to shift your view that this is just a short term solution for a really big long term gain. In terms of early enterprises for us, the really easiest one to start, which required the littlest infrastructure, but which when, you know, even on a small scale or scaled up would give the biggest return is hens. Hens and eggs, free range eggs. You know, hens are by far the littlest animal, but they are by far the biggest impact in terms of the work they do in the fields and in terms of the produce that they provide and then the financial return that that can give. So, you know, we reckon rough estimate is that it can run at about 50% profit, which is pretty good going. So if you can start a little enterprise like that up, have your off-farm work going, build that enterprise up a little bit more, building up your customer base, telling your story, all of a sudden the pennies turns into pounds and that's what you want to do. I think the honesty there, Lynn, is really, really, really valuable. And the fact that if you want something so much, you actually have to work really, really hard at it and you have to do things that you don't necessarily want to do to get there. I think that's a fantastic message because when people see where you and Sandra are at now, almost like this idealistic sort of place where your business is working with so many different functions and elements to it. But for people to be reminded that it actually took a lot of hard work to get to there. So that's really valuable. So thinking back to those goodness me you're only four years into your journey so this is it is early and it is the start and it is super exciting what you've managed to do in such a short period of time but thinking back to maybe a couple of years ago or or at the start what support do you wish had been available when you started what do you wish had been out there to help you both in your journey so uh, you look at the farming world as a whole and there's tons of advice and guidance out there. You know, there really is. There's lots of workshops, there's advisors that you can employ to navigate grant systems or all that kind of thing. You know, there's charities now offering a lot of support, which we've used, like the Woodland Trust, for example, on, you know, planting trees. There's endless support out there. I think, again, what I would say is that the biggest strength and the most important expert out there is you, is the person who is living on the land, who is experiencing the land, and who is honest with themselves and really opens their eyes to what's happening around them and the potential that exists there in the context of what it is that they can give to. The best advice anybody ever said to me was, you are the expert on your farm. And I don't think we're told that enough. I think we naturally look for other people to tell us how to do things. We're always looking for that magic bullet, aren't we? The one that will give us eternal happiness and uh, endless wealth. And actually, we're the people that hold the key to unlock that because we're the ones that define the kind of wealth that we want to have in our lives. Is it monetary or is it spiritual health or physical health or mental health or is it land health? We're the ones that know what's best for our land because we watch it and observe it every day. So actually, whilst it was great to have access to a lot of information, I think we needed to hear from somebody 
to tell us that we had to believe in what we felt was the right thing for us and our land. That's really powerful. And I guess they're going on to the idea that we just need to be connected back to the land, don't we? That if you actually watch yes. what's happening with the seasons, if you watch what's happening in the soil and what your animals and plants are doing, then they're your teachers, aren't they? Absolutely. And there's been quite this move away to just make everything academic and actually <laughs> pausing and observing and experiencing what's actually what is and what's real, I guess is it, yes. you're saying yeah. is exceptionally powerful. I think that's it. And I think as well, we all like to look at what our neighbours are doing and we all like to look at what our peers are doing. And, you know, sometimes we get jealous or we get envious. And that's all kind of great because it challenges you and you always learn from that. But equally, it's about looking inside yourself as well and thinking, yes, but what do I really want and what can I really achieve? And that's sometimes a question that we don't ask ourselves enough. But Going back to your other question about other things that I wish were available more is actually the kind of thing that we're doing right now. So, you know, podcasts have really boomed over lockdown, haven't they? And even in the last year or two, podcasts have just exploded. And what's great about kind of more localized podcasts is you start to learn more about who is in your local area doing similar things so that you can start to create a social network. So, you know, the, the kind of obvious example of somebody that you know is Kat from Akpopuli Farm. So in terms of distance for us, it's only an hour away. And Kat is an incredibly good friend, an incredibly inspiring young farmer, new entrant with a real story to tell. And, and she's true to herself. And I think that's what makes the kind of the story of Kat so beautiful is that she's true to herself. And I think we all need we all need more cats in our life. And I think we all need to be a little bit more like Kat. I tell you, I don't think I've ever seen such a beautiful smile in my entire life. <laughs> it makes me smile just to think of it. Yeah. And that's a really important point that I was going to kind of move on to anyway, which is how you have found other people that are in the same sort of situation with you that you maybe be discussing problems and issues and solutions with. Because a network's obviously imperative part of this journey for you. So how have you gone about finding your tribe, if you like? So the networking is something that's really, really important. I you know, fully advocate going and doing things like visiting farms and stuff, you know, as part of that network. But whenever we started out, it was our old friend Google that came into the mix, you know, living and in, in working in a new area and really kind of trying to find our feet. We didn't, I guess, really know what we were looking for, but we just started to sort of figure it out. And I mean, that was back in 2016. And then we, we didn't really know of, you know, terms like, regenerative farming you know we didn't really know what that meant and we just certainly didn't know of anybody doing it but the first people who we got in touch with was uh, a couple called Roger and Jilly who were based over on the Isle of Lismore and they have a, a small farm called Salian and through googling we found them and we found that they were practicing something that was called holistic management which was something that we've been reading into and it's basically a way of kind of running a farm business based on achieving positive economic, social and environmental outcomes. So uh, we got in touch with them and went over to see them and it was just mind blown. It was everything that we wanted to do and somebody actually doing it, which totally blew our minds apart. And I think it was from that point onwards that we had, I guess, a route to travel down. So you know, I've kind of mentioned a few things already, like regenerative agriculture, you know, holistic management, you know, they're all kind of labels, they're all kind of like, oh, you know, you farm in this particular kind of way. And 
what I prefer to see them as are waymarking posts. So they're kind of these little posts that you come across on your journey and they take you down different avenues, but you still continue heading in the direction that you want to continue in. So once we'd sort of found these way markers, it was just a case of building and building and building. So we ended up meeting a, a lass called Clem Sanderson from the Soil Association, who's very passionate about this. And she ended up getting us involved in different soil association groups. And we did our own holistic management training. And I guess it's, you know, the snowflake creates the snowball. And that's how it all happened. That sounds really positive. There's another thing I was thinking about, and I was thinking of you and of Kat and of the other folk that we've been mentioning. When you're not necessarily the typical farmer, which I think mm. if we were to actually ask someone what would their idea be of the typical farmer, it's probably man in his 50s mm. with a wife and children. Mm. And you can see that we're moving away from that. But what's your experience of not being that typical farmer? Yeah, I don't think we are very typical in terms of percentages of what a farmer constitutes, I guess. Um, I can only be honest and say that we've only made positive experiences and we've always reflected and questioned why. You know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, you know, I struggled with this or I struggled with that or this person wasn't nice to me or that person didn't like what I was doing. And you know, we've always said, well, you know, why have we only made good experiences? And I suppose we like to think that it's because you know, we moved into this area, into this completely new culture, and we just tried to get on with it. We just tried to fit in, but be true to who it was that we were, but just get on with what it was that we wanted to do. So we weren't coming in and telling all the farmers around us, oh, you don't want to do it like that. Oh, you know, you don't want to plow. That's terrible. Or, oh, you don't want to put that fertilizer on. That's awful. We never, ever, ever did that. And nor would we. We just came and we said, this is what we would like to do and heads down and worked hard. And I think it was taking that approach that certainly helped and also opening ourselves up to all sorts of information. So we were going to people and saying, how do you do this? How do you do that? And sometimes we do it, sometimes we didn't. But we'd always be very thankful for their time. And we'd always be thankful for the experience that we were sharing. And, and we would respect that because people come here all the time. And I know some things they think, oh, that looks great. And some things they think I wouldn't do it like that. That's great. That's no problem. You go and do it like that. I do it like this. And this is what I like. End of. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So what would be your top tip for someone who's got a farm in Crofton as a dream, but have absolutely no idea how to make this happen and it to become a reality? Yeah, we, we often reflect on it. So we've been at Limbrek for four and a half years and we've been very outward facing. And one of the reasons why we've been very outward facing is because we want to use our experience and our journey to help others who are not at this stage. So I think the best advice that we can give to people is if you get an opportunity to do it, go and visit the people who you like what it is that they're doing. So, for example, we went to see Roger and Jilly. They were holding an open day. You know, we traveled the whole way over to Lismore. And it was one day. It cost us, I think it was £30 each. We had lunch. We met other people. And it was basically transformative. You know, it was the best 60 quid that we ever spent. Equally, if you get a chance to go and visit people who you're not sure what it is that they do, that can be just as important. Because sometimes you need to understand what it is that you don't want to understand what it is that you do want. The second thing I think that I would say is do not get disheartened. It never happens at the speed at which you want it to. 
you know, Sandra and I met in 2012. We didn't get to Limbrek until 2016. You know, so it was four and a half years. And previous to that, we were living our own lives still with this dream, saving and working hard. So really, this is the result of decades of saving and working and really building it up to this point. So keep hold of the vision and almost enjoy the dreaming stage. So enjoy the point at which you're sitting in your little kind of terraced house somewhere, working the job that you really hate. But every night you're kind of coming in going, oh my goodness, imagine this. And oh my goodness, we could do that. And you kind of get carried away. And then all of a sudden it's two in the morning and you're just, you're in some little kind of small holding haven where all is good in the world. Really enjoy that time and appreciate it and use it. Because when we look back at all the mind maps that we made and the lists that we made, 90% of those have ended up actually coming true. So you're kind of living it a little bit early. That's awesome. And I guess it's kind of just making me think there that, you know, those quotes that you read where everything starts off as a thought. Yeah, yeah. You'll just keep that sense, that visualising and having that thought and just believing in what it is that you're dreaming of. So you and Sandra are obviously exceptionally passionate about what you do and about sharing your experience and knowledge. You have lots of different ways of engaging people in your work, which is really inspiring. So could you tell us a little bit about that and then what your plans are going forward? Because I know you've got some exciting things in the pipeline. Yeah, so it all started with a Facebook page and we thought we should probably give ourselves a bit of an identity to the outside world. You know, in marketing terms, it's a logo or a trademark or whatever. So we had a little kind of Limbrek logo made, which cost us 150 quid. That became our kind of face to the bigger world. We then started using Twitter and Instagram And it was all just a case of putting up a picture and trying to tell a little bit of a story with it so that it wasn't just a, here's a picture of my cow. It was, here's a picture of a Highland cow. Highland cows are native to this area. They produce a really good beef. You know, that kind of thing, really building the story element into it. And I think also trying to keep it positive. So there are so many social media accounts that are so negative and you know you just look at them some days and you just think oh you know you're losing the will to live and you know we could put up loads of negative stuff you know oh today's been rubbish everything's gone wrong the polycrops just flooded the roof's fallen in of the hen house and we try to be real of course we try to be real but we always try to be positive and I think that mindset is something we try and apply to everyday life so so that's kind of how the social media element started to work and then of course we had an opportunity to appear on BBC This Farming Life a couple of years ago, which documented our first year of taking animals onto the croft, which was a really stressful year and a really tough year, massive learning curves. And there was a TV camera in your face all the time while you're learning all these experiences. But again, we did that because we wanted to say to people, anybody that's out there that wants to do this, you can do it. And here's a little bit of an insight as to what it looks like. So we have a website now. We do a lot of tours and on the one hand is a useful income stream for us, but it's a way to get people here to show them what it is that we do and to say, what do you think of this kind of farming? Are you happy with how your food is produced? Are you happy with the welfare of the animals? Are you happy with the environmental credentials that we claim to have? So that's really important conversations that we can have with people. And then what we also have just written is our own course and we call it How to Farm. And that's basically a five-day course just summarizing all of the information that we've learned 
including spreadsheets of our enterprises. You know, what pays, what doesn't pay? Uh, how have we diversified? How have we added value? How have we maximized return? But always making sure that we're catering for our physical and mental health and well-being. And that is so critically important. You can have all the money in the world or you can have all the wealth in the world, but if you're not happy, it accounts for nothing. So that's always what underpins everything. So this year, we've just taken on two new big projects. So one is renovating our Croft House. That will be a holiday rental, which will be a great income stream for us in the future. And the second thing that we've just taken on is writing a book on, I guess, the story of Limbrick and how we try to feed our community, how we try to build a, a farm business based on the foundations of nature. So we've got to have that written by next March. And that's when the holiday accommodation should be ready too. So it's going to be a busy winter, I think. <laughs> There was me that when the winter comes, that's when you're supposed to hibernate and relax and take it easy after all your hard work. I know. I know. What an exciting journey. Oh, it's just been delightful to talk to you. We could probably talk for a long, long time, but I hope that we've managed to capture a real flavour of both your personalities there and your values and your belief system that's driving all of this forward because you can see where it's coming from. It's coming from really deep within your soul, which is really inspiring. So if you just finish off by giving our listeners ideas of where they can check you out and where they can find you and how they can follow the Lindbeck journey as we go forward, that would be super. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a website, uh, lindbreckcroft.co.uk, and we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at lindbreckcroft. And we also have a YouTube channel, which we don't anywhere nearly update enough, but it's there for when we do get the time. So that's lindbreckcroft as well on YouTube. And if anybody has ever any questions, please feel free to drop us an email. We can't always get to answer everybody's, but if we do get an opportunity, we certainly will. Thanks, Lynn. That has been a real treat to chat with you today and find out more about the wonderful things that you're doing at Lindbreck. Now we welcome Roz and we'll find out more about the opportunities and initiatives out there to support new entrant farmers. Hi Roz, it'd be great if you could start off by telling us what the Landworkers Alliance is. So the Landworkers Alliance was set up about six or seven years ago at a UK food sovereignty gathering. And it was recognised there that there was a real need for a union to represent farmers and land workers in the UK that were following the principles of food sovereignty and agroecology and that the other kind of farming unions in the UK weren't so much representing that type of farming and set of values. And we really strive to make sure that our members are well supported and that we're building a much stronger movement in the UK for food sovereignty and agroecology. So we support our members in lots of different ways. There's two different strands, really. One is through agroecological training networks that we set up, and these can take a number of different forms, whether they're quite informal get-togethers of farmers and land workers where they can share their skills and experience and knowledge and have a good blether and a moan over a cup of tea about the weather and the pests to much more kind of structured programmes about how to run a traineeship on your farm, one-to-one -one mentoring. And we're looking to develop a lot more support on developing business plans and other things like dealing with planning applications and stuff like that. 
So that's kind of one strand of what we do. And then the other strand is more around campaigns to change the policy and systemic challenges that we face as small scale agroecological farmers and land workers. So we do a lot of lobbying with different governments at UK level and the Scottish and Welsh governments and look at other kind of systemic barriers that make it really difficult for people to either start farming or to keep farming. We've got, I think, just under 1,500 members now. And this year was our biggest increase in membership. We had nearly 400 members joining this year. Our membership doubled in Scotland, which is really exciting. And our members are really amazing bunch of people and keep me inspired and give me lots of hope in doing the work that we do. And our members tend to be generally much younger compared to the demographic of UK farming as a whole. We also represent a lot more women. I think they're more than 50% of our membership. And we've got active working groups for LGBTQI plus members and also a black and people of colour working group as well that's supporting those members. We're also increasingly representing different sectors. So we kind of started with very horticultural focused sectors of farming. Now we're seeing many more members having mixed farming enterprises and also we've got specialists in certain areas like fisheries, beekeeping and apiculture and our woodland and forestry group. Do you think what you're doing at the Landworkers Alliance is increasing diversity, not just in farming, but farmers? Yeah, we really hope so. And I think because we try and showcase a lot of our members a lot and some of the excellent work that they're doing, to see a broader range of people doing farming and land-based work can really inspire more people. You know, it, it allows people to identify with someone doing the work that they're doing that is from the same background that they're from. So I think it is really helping to build that diversity in the land work sector. What would you say to folk thinking they can't get into farming because they don't come from a farming family or background? Yeah, I think for a lot of people it's like, I haven't come from a family farming background, but there's a lot of people that are passionate about our food system and want to do something really practical about it, but don't imagine that they can because they're not from a family farming background. But actually it is possible it is hard there are a lot of systemic barriers that make it incredibly hard to start farming but there are people that are managing and there are improving support systems to help people to start as well. How important is succession planning for the future of the sector? Well the average age of the workforce in Scotland is 58 so we face quite a like daunting prospect in five to ten years time suddenly having like a workforce that has completely disappeared and all of the things that that represents in terms of a loss of knowledge and skills around land use and land management as well as the cultural importance of the role that those farmers play in rural communities. But I think the Scottish government does really recognise that this is quite a like crisis point in farming in terms of the age of the population of farmers and compared to the UK government has been more proactive in terms of looking at how to support more new entrants into agriculture although there's always room for improvement. (laughs) There is industry-wide concerns about the lack of opportunities for new entrants to access land and capital funding. What support is out there to help them with this? 
They had to run through the rural payment system two funding programs for new entrants and uh, young farmers to be able to gain capital finance and other finance to set up new enterprises. Um, They are not open at the moment. I think the funding pot that that came from ran out of money. They've been closed since 2018. But we'd be really keen to see that those are started again, because for some of our members, they were critical to them being able to get going as a business, um, whether that's like deer fencing or polytunnels or machinery, things like that. But kind of knowing that that existed means that we can push for it to be reopened again, hopefully. The Scottish Government have also set up this farming opportunities for new entrants group, which has representatives from all kinds of different organisations like NFU, Farm Advisory Service, Scottish Rural College. And they are mostly working to support access to land for new entrants from all types of farming backgrounds. So yeah, FONO supporting new tenancies to come forward, which is good. And they also offer this Scottish land matching service, which is where they will kind of facilitate arrangements between other landowners and new entrants looking for land. And the more people that use that service, the more the Scottish government will invest in it. So I really recommend people who are looking for land to log their interest with that service. And if you are looking for kind of longer term or opportunities on organic land or something like that to be quite specific about that because it will really help to shape the way that that service is designed in the future. Is there any evidence that new entrants approach things in a more innovative way? And if so, do you have any examples? Yes, definitely. Farming is not just at a crisis because of the age of the existing farm workforce, but also people really recognise that the type of farming that we currently do really needs to change. And so a lot of people that start farming now are really kind of motivated by that need for change. And I think that does really drive innovation in the new entrants that are starting farming. And that can be in all sorts of different ways, whether that's innovation around the type of business models that people run or the types of tools and machinery that people run or the types of sales systems is a very broad interpretation of innovation. But taking that as just like exploring how to do farming differently and really trying out different ways of doing that so some of the organization types that people are trying are like different workers co-ops or different ways of engaging members of the community and farming through community supported agriculture type systems and there's lots of really great CSA projects in Scotland that have been running for a few years now like Tom Naha and Meadowsweet Organics, uh, Knock Farrell up in the Highlands and some of those kind of organisation types also help to deal with the like access to land challenge by pooling resources of a group of people rather than it being one individual. There's lots of innovation around tools, especially some of the like online stuff and new entrants tend to be young and might have had more experience in all of the like IT and social media and spreadsheet skills and that That really helps with innovation in the types of supply chains that get developed as well. So seeing a lot more direct sales systems, whether that's like Limburg Croft doing their online meat subscription box or people using things like the Open Food Network or food assemblies as ways of selling. Do you have any advice for new entrants? Um, I would say always know that 
there are other people out there doing what you're doing and it can feel really isolated to be weeding a very long row of carrots in the rain (laughs) but there are lots of people out there doing what you're doing and they're really passionate about it so like on low points remember that and just try and visit as many different places as you can that you're interested in what they're doing. I know that's especially hard at the moment um, with COVID, but there are people that have done like online videos about their farming systems as well. But when travel restrictions become easier, definitely visit places because that will get you invaluable insights and networks for doing what you're wanting to do. It's quite hard to get the right kind of formal training and kind of agroecological type farming. It's not really very well supported in the UK. There are some, the SRUC, Organic Agriculture, MSE, is the most formal training, but it's got its gaps as well. And so a lot of the training and skills that you'll gain at the moment are through kind of on-farm experience. So just try and immerse yourself in as much as that as possible before you get started. And I think also like know that it's hard. The structural food system that we're in makes what we're trying to do really hard, but it's so important to have examples to start leading the change in the food system that we really need. We have got a kind of internal document that we send to policymakers about the initial capital startup costs for new entrants and why there's a need for capital and revenue support for the first two to five years of a new entrance business, because that can just really help get going and then be able to kind of invest in a business system that is going to be more sustainable in the long term rather than very small incremental growth models. Do you know what the plans are for future new entrant grants? I think they really recognise the need to support new entrants. The whole of the rural payment system is in a huge degree of uncertainty at the moment due to Brexit, obviously, but also the Scottish government is behind the UK government's launch of the new subsidy system and that they have agreed that they're not going to make any policy changes until after, I think it's 2025. So nothing new will be introduced until then. And so what support is available to new entrants is part of like a much bigger picture about what the overall support package will look like for farmers. One thing that I think is potentially positive is that Fergus Ewing talks a lot about needing the farming sector to deal much more with the climate crisis. And so I think rural payments will be aligned to farming that is addressing that. What that means in practice needs a lot of teasing out. <laughs> so where can people go to get training in agroecology? We are working with Nourish and a few other people to ask the Scottish Government for more specific training provision for agroecological type farming. And we work alongside a lot of really great organisations like the Organic Growers Alliance has lots of great resources for organic horticulture the smallholders and the Scottish Crafting Federation have loads of uh, useful resources and training. Like, there's quite a lot out there, but it's quite dispersed and sometimes a bit confusing, for sure. Where will folk find out more about the Landworkers Alliance? We have a great website, www.landworkersalliance.org.uk. 
And it's we ran a whole program of webinars over the summer and they're all online there. So that they've got some really good things in there like setting up a book scheme or selling meat directly, health and safety on your farm during COVID, that kind of thing. And there's loads of publications on there as well. There's also forums for members which people can kind of pose questions in. We're having our AGM on the 4th and 5th of December and that will be online, obviously. But that will be a really great way for anyone that's interested in becoming a member to kind of understand a lot more about our organisation and what we do to support people. So, yeah, join and help us have a stronger voice with the policymakers. I'm also a director for the Scottish Farmland Trust, which is a community benefit society. And we take an inspiration from different farmland access models across Europe, such as Terdlian, who purchase land that's for sale through community share offers and then offer it out on a long-term tenancy to farmers who want to farm agroecologically. We're also trying to kind of intervene in the land market and create an organisation that can hold land in trust for really long periods of time to support agroecological farming specifically and give people the long-term opportunity that they need. That could really transform land ownership in this country. How wonderful. Now, Rose, before we finish, could you please share your one wish for the food system in Scotland? I'm really interested in looking at the regulation of the land market because Speculation on the value of land is one of the things that really drives the inaccessibility of land for new entrants and really pushes up the value of land, but also affects how that land is managed in terms of whether it's for housing developments or what kind of planning it can get. And I think it's a big question for Scotland with the land reform agenda. We look at different ways to own land and to diversify the ownership, but We also need to kind of think about how the land market is regulated to look at how things get sold and under what terms and ensure that we're kind of safeguarding the soil that we have for the future. Thank you so much, Rose. Wow, you've shared an incredible amount of information there. Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure to come along and talk to you. And it's a great programme. So if our listeners want to find out more about the Land Workers Alliance or the Scottish Farmland Trust, then go check out their websites and make contact with Ros. Supporting new entrant farmers really is an important piece of the jigsaw. It's super inspiring to hear about the increased diversity in the sector and of the innovative entrepreneurial spirit. I really hope that anyone listening who dreams of being a farmer but feels there are too many barriers is now motivated and enthused to take that brave first step and just do it. Yes, it is tough and a massive amount of commitment, love and passion, but with belief, dedication and hard work, it is possible. If you're feeling inspired and want to join the food movement in the Highlands, why not come along to our conference in January? Get tickets at highlandgoodfood.scot forward slash conference. Hope to see you there. You have been listening to the Highland Good Food podcast. Remember to subscribe at highlandgoodfood.scot and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. See you next time.